a very special episode of Forward Guidance today. It's the evening of Thursday, October 26th, and Sam Bakeman freed testified for the first time. He broke his silence for, for this trial. Of course, I'm talking about the disgraced crypto hustler who's uh, lost you know, investors many, many billions of dollars. I'm joined by Casey Wagner, a senior reporter at, at Blockworks, who's been following this story very closely. Casey, what an insane day we have. You for, for me, this was a wild ride of my life. But for you, it was just a Thursday because you've been doing this for, for two weeks. What was your impression? I mean, was this especially crazy compared to what's been going on so far? It was. It was a it was a really good day in court. So you definitely picked a great day to come. I would say the only other comparable day I can think of is when Caroline Ellison testified, which took several days and she had a lot of bombshells to drop. For those who have not been following, Caroline is Sam's former girlfriend. They were on again, off again for many years. And she was also the CEO of Alameda Research, which was his crypto hedge fund. Right. And he had left Alameda Research, but he was still involved in hedging as well as VC. So he's, he's yes. as well as being on a, on a trade. I mean, we, Casey, just for the audience, we learned so many insane facts. I'm sure most of the facts that you already know, having you know followed the story so closely, but I mean, just my own you know, interpretation going into this trial was that it was a fairly straightforward case of embezzlement of literally the funds being sent to the hedge fund Alameda as them and then holding it on behalf of FTX. And then Sam Bankman-Fried using those customer funds, which were in his hedge fund to spend on expensive real estate, to spend on venture capital investments and to spend on, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing expenses, including $55 million to, to Tom Brady. And that was my impression going in. I would have expected, however, Sam Bankman-Fried and the defense to have refuted some of that and actually challenged that narrative. But it seems my interpretation is he said, yeah, no, we, we, we did it, but it was, it was right. And because there was a, what was it? A, a some sort of agreement that allowed it. And it was right. And then the, the lawyer said, was it your view that this was right to use customer funds for Alameda? And he said, yes, because of this. I mean, that was, that was crazy, Casey. It was, it was. And I'm curious. So for those who are catching up, what Jack and I heard today was a hearing. It was testimony. So Sam was under oath. He could be charged with perjury if he perjured himself today. So it, it was, for all intents and purposes, a testimony. However, the jury was not present. So the purpose of this hearing was for the judge to get a sense of what the defense and prosecution want to ask Sam. And the judge will decide tonight and tomorrow morning about what he will actually allow the jury to hear. So it is possible that when Sam takes the stand for real, I'll say, in front of the jury... Mm -hmm. They could get into some of this nitty gritty way that he was spending money because that has been a lot of really damning testimony against him so far. But you're correct. I mean, he said that this claw, this this payment agent agreement, thank you, allowed Alameda to potentially transfer funds um, or or hold funds as long as. When the time came to satisfy withdrawals, they could. Of course, we not know just that. that they could. Sorry, but spend. Yes. 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 Not just and hold I mean, on Sam, the behalf of spend. Sam said that you know that was his understanding, and a, and a big part of the defense so far has been, and what what we really got a glimpse of today was this argument that Sam hired attorneys, he had a legal team, he had all these people working under him that told him that everything was fine. It's kind of this argument of he was too far at the top to really know what was going on. And we see that in a lot of white collar cases. So I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out. I, I don't see it resonating with the jury. You know, I, I, I've been able to spend a decent amount of time with them over the past few weeks and they just, they don't really seem so far sympathetic to to really anything the defense has been trying to do. Okay, that's interesting because sample size of one, there was a guy outside the courtroom. He said, what do you think of that trial? And I said, I, I think it was pretty pretty damning, you know, Sam's t testimony. And I said, what do you think? And he said, look, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert, but I actually thought he came across pretty, pretty good. I mean, 
What do you think of that? Yeah. How, how many jurors do you think will make that conclusion tomorrow? I, I don't know. Sam could come off as incredibly sympathetic, but at the end of the day, their task is to look at the evidence that was presented and determine beyond a reasonable doubt if he committed these crimes. So they can find him sympathetic. They can agree potentially that he did hire bad attorneys and, and he did put the wrong people in charge and he did take some bad advice. But if the evidence shows them you know, reasonably enough that he did commit wire fraud, conspire to commit wire fraud, conspire to commit securities fraud, conspire to commit commodities fraud, conspire to commit fraud against FTX customers. I mean, there's seven charges. So the list goes on. But yeah, I mean, at the at the end of the day, it's it's the evidence. And I'm I'm curious to see how it goes tomorrow because a lot of what we've heard from the other the the government star witnesses, which are Gary Wong, Caroline Ellison, and Nishad Singh, they're kind of Sam's inner circle if you will, at FTX and Alameda, all of them, all three of them have agreed to cooperate with the government. So they are testifying with the hopes of potentially reducing their own sentences. All of them were charged with several criminal counts as well. Caroline's facing the most time. But a lot of what they said, they did to some extent have some have some receipts to back it up. But a lot of what they're saying is fairly anecdotal. You know, Caroline's saying that Sam directed her to do certain things Nishad saying that Sam told him to write certain code. Gary said very similar things. And like I said, there are some receipts, there's some messages, there's, you know, some Slack channels, but because a lot of this was happening on Signal and there was Mm -hmm. auto delete, Mm -hmm. we don't have a ton of information. So I'm curious if the defense will really lean into that kind of he said, she said narrative and try to paint Sam in a different light and, you know, get him to say that he didn't necessarily direct these people to do these things. Yes, yeah, so that that was wild. How much of the messages were from Signal, and they had an auto delete policy. However, they also had a company wide document retention policy, and allegedly, allegedly, but no one can find the document uh, retention policy. And then they said, when you were deleting all these messages and and recommending to, you know, basically take customer money, and then those messages were deleted, was that in violation of your? document retention policy. And he said, not to my knowledge. I mean, he said, not to my knowledge. I don't recall. I don't remember so many times. It it was so many times. It was was crazy. What do you think about that document retention policy? Where is it? I thought it was, I, (laughs) so this is, this was the the lead and the, the whole angle for the story that I wrote this afternoon. What we learned today is a big part of the defense's case is that there was a policy that was drafted by attorneys that gave Sam and the team permission to not retain a lot of data and documents. So in other words, if he sent a message saying, hey, yeah, take that $6 billion from our customers and pay back our lenders in, in order to pay back the money that we lost you know, trading crypto coins, that message was deleted. And the, the, the defense's argument is, oh, well, that was part of a policy. Yes. So the defense argument is that Sam's decision, because that, that's been a big part of the government's case so far, is that Sam directed everyone to use Signal when they could, to, to keep messages only for a week at a time, to really be extremely careful with any retention policies of, of any communications. He encouraged phone calls and in-person conversations as much as they could. So what what the defense is now arguing is that everything that Sam did was protected under this policy. And this policy was advised to him by attorneys, was written by attorneys, both internal counsel and external counsel for FTX. The craziest thing to me about resting so much of their case on this one document is they cannot produce the document. (laughs) It, It has not been entered into evidence. Sam said that they have attempted to retrieve it via subpoenas to Fenwick and West. That was the uh, the law firm that was helping them draft it, their outside counsel. And they have been unsuccessful, which again, this is speculation. I don't want to accuse Sam of perjuring himself, but as someone in the gallery, it, it led me to question whether this policy ever existed in a written form. And so I can imagine that the jury would probably feel the same. If this was a policy that Sam was following so closely that he was basing so many of his decisions off of, why doesn't he have a copy of it? 
I mean, Casey, I, I'm not good with documents, really. But I, if you ask me to find a health record from 2017, like it would take me a few hours, but I could, I could find it. And he's and we, risking his we, whole case they on. They have this. everything. They did everything on Google Docs. We have seen Caroline Ellison took meticulous notes. They have journal entries from Caroline Ellison. Like they have combed through these computers, and they cannot find it. So who wrote or this policy? They did find it. They said that they can't. They, they can't find it. Maybe because they can't find it, maybe because it doesn't exist in written form. So who so that's, allegedly that's wrote this this policy that may or may not exist? Who wrote this policy? And is it the, the head of lawyer who has a criminal past? It was Dan Friedberg, who was the chief compliance officer at FTX and also an attorney. Dan, Sam said, crafted it with the outside counsel, which I mentioned was Fenwick and West. Dan's and past he, is questionable. Yeah. Uh, and the prosecution said... Maybe he's not a respectable lawyer. They did. They was, implied it was, that. It was, it was um, ultimate bet, right? It was because in the poker world, it was a, a company that basically allowed some players to see other players' cards, I think. I believe that was the gist of it. The prosecution actually asked Sam, isn't it true that Dan did illegal narcotics with your employees? Um and interestingly, the judge the, wasn't having that, right? Yes, yes. So the defense objected. The judge sustained that for anyone listening that is not up to date on their legal terms. That basically means the judge prevented Sam from having to answer that question, and, and they took it out of the record. So, yeah, it was. It's a lot. Their defense is really riding on some some foundation that seems pretty shaky. And the prosecution, their case is so sound just tell us what a masterful job that the prosecutor did in cross-examining sam i mean she asked such great questions that really got to the heart of the matter danielle sassoon has impressed me every day today she exceeded my expectations her family has actually been in the gallery a lot and i, I wish that her mom was there today because it was so good and it, it's fun to watch you know when you when you have breaks and stuff you get to see the prosecutors walk outside just like we do and um, getting to see her family congratulate her and, and talk to her after that she's done some of the cross exams that oh, has wow. been pretty fun, but not today. But Danielle, I mean, she knows what she's doing. And, and I think a lot of, for example, the question about the, the narcotic use, I think that, you know, she knows that that's going to get objected, yeah. but throwing it in there, even not in front of the jury does kind of speak to what she's getting at, but also kind of signal to Sam that, She's not having it. And and she knows what happened. And, you know, the government had 17, maybe more witnesses. The defense is only going to have three so far if they decide to rest after Sam, which they said that they will. The government, I mean, the prosecution's doing a great job. Sam was, I said he was saying a lot of words without really saying anything at all. Yeah, well, do you want to you, you want to ask me a question? Either pretend I'm Sam, or just ask me a general question. I'll answer it like Sam. Okay. 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 Mr. Bankman Freed, when did you in when did you start enforcing auto delete on your signal messages? So I'm not aware that I had an auto delete policy on at the, the time, and I don't recall when I did that. Could you be a little bit more specific? What you mean by uh, auto delete? So we, we see in the chat that you auto-delete was enabled. We have screenshots of this chat. Do you know when this was, when you started doing it? I, I don't recall. That was a great Sam impression. <laughs> but much no, more. Like, like he just went on and on saying nothing. He did. And especially on this technical stuff, like he, he kind of got into a tangent on like margin trading and trying to explain some of the FTX terms and conditions that it did have a section on margin trading about, you know, your positions might be liquidated if you're collateral falls to a certain low level X, Y, and Z. And yeah, I mean, Sam can talk for a long time. And by the end of it, I was confused. I would expect the jury to have been confused. It's irritating the judge. It's irritating the prosecution mm -hmm. because it's a waste of their time. You know, the witness is supposed to answer the question at hand and we'll see if he changes that tomorrow. But today he was most certainly not doing that. Yeah, he really did not answer the question and he just went on and on and on in a very circuitous manner and, and and the judge said you know the defendant 
I'm going to say he has a, let's just say, an interesting way of answering questions. Yes, yes. And I mean, Kaplan, you saw today. He, the judge. Yes, the judge, Lewis Kaplan, senior judge at the Southern District of New York District Court, U.S. District Court. He he's fiery. I mean, he he really shows his personality from the bench, which has been really fun to watch. But when he's irritated with you, you know it. You know, even when Cohen was questioned, Cohen is Bankman-Fried's lead defense attorney, Mark Cohen. When Cohen was examining Sam on the direct and asking him about this document retention policy, Kaplan even cut in and said, I mean, where is this document? And Cohen didn't have an answer. So he, he literally went like this. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and later we found out from Sam that uh, apparently some subpoenas haven't haven't gone through or something. But Lost Kaplan, I mean, he's he'll do this in front of the jury, too. And it's he he's done it to both sides. You know, there have been some points where he's told the prosecution to wrap things up. He's expressed some frustrations at some of their witness choices. You know, he's he's really in the He's thinking of the jury in that, and he said this many times. He's like, we have 18 people on the jury that are giving up a lot of their time, and they're taking weeks out of their lives to come and sit here. And, you know, respecting their time and moving quickly is the least that we could do for their service. So he really is, he's trying to move things along. Things are ahead of schedule, but when he thinks that you're kind of beating a dead horse or pursuing a path that should not be pursued, he will let you know it. And the jury has been able to see that on both sides, but I would say probably more to the defense. Yes. And you're right. He's absolutely right. The jury, they're, they're sacrificing their time. You know, Casey, you and me, like we're, we're freaks, we're sickos. We, we live for this stuff, but the jury, you know, they've got to, it's not fun for them. Like they've got to get, get back to their lives. All right. So Casey, we are, yeah, we're, most nowhere- of them aren't even getting compensated from their, their normal jobs. So it's. Yeah. Wow. It is a lot. We are nowhere near done with the cross-examination of Sam, but let's just take a little bit of a breather and talk about the first two witnesses, which were incredibly bizarre, and particularly the the second one. So as you said, I think you said 18, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, the government's, the prosecution's witness, that's how many they have. The defense has three. So the the first was Sam, Sam McMurphy's personal lawyer from the Bahamas, who yes. she's she's a member of the of the king's court or or, or something. She has yeah, you know, a special. She's yeah. a very special type of you know decorated. The Bahamas Bahamas is a um, UK territory. So. Yeah, she she was UK actually I, I liked her, but her testimony had almost no relevance at all. I agree. agree. Yeah, I think the jury liked her too. They were laughing along with her. She she had a great presence up on the stand. To be honest, but yeah, for the listeners, this witness is someone that Sam retained on November twelfth, twenty twenty two. So that's one day after they filed for bankruptcy in the United States. He retained this attorney because the securities regulator in the Bahamas was calling him in for questioning, and he needed counsel. So this was his Bahamian lawyer, and I, I agree. I don't think. She added anything. She testified that she was at the meeting that Sam had with securities regulators, which we've already heard about from prior testimony. But I guess she's the first person that we've heard about it from that's on Sam's side, if you will. She had good energy. She She was great on vibes. And I bet she's, you know, a cool person. But in terms of what it adds to the case, positive or negative, it was kind of just like, well, we can't have only two witnesses. We can't have 50% of our witnesses be the defendant. So we, we're right. going to add it. Okay. So let's talk about the second uh, person whose name is Joseph, Joseph Kimley. Kimley. I could go on and on and on about this, Casey, but how about you describe your feeling when you first saw him walk up to the stand and how he described his resume, his background, and in particular, the very narrow type of analysis he did in this case. So Joseph is a physics expert. He has three degrees in physics, including a PhD. He worked at Citibank, I believe. Now he does some sort of financial consulting. The defense hired him and paid him $720 an hour for more than 70 hours, seven zero hours, that is, to create an analysis based on the FTX database pulled from Amazon Web Services. So that's what we saw today. Jack, how did you interpret it? I I think the jury was lost. He talked a lot about coding. He talked a lot about coding languages. 
that's not resonating with the jury. It did not resonate with me. Mm-mm. And again, I, I, I wasn't really understanding the purpose he's serving. The point when you're putting on a case is to create a narrative for the jury. The prosecution did an excellent job of this. They started with a victim of FTX. Then they moved into FTX leadership. Then they brought in the FBI and the expert witnesses that could testify to the phone records and the integrity of the balance sheet and the forensic accounting to show where the money was going and and looking at all these bank statements. They had more victims. They, They created such a wonderful story that was easy to follow. I have yet to see that from the defense. Yeah, so this guy, he's, I would call him a quant, and he seems like his job now is being hired to do financial analysis, some of which I'm, I'm sure is a uh, legit and serious analysis. I can't say the same for what I saw today, Casey. Um, I agree. He, it basically seemed like the defense took a, a set of data, gave it to him, asked him to make a series of charts and analysis, which we can get into, that is by almost by definition, the most positive outlook that showed that it, you know it's it's not a fraud. I'm not a computer science person at all, but it's it's about interpreting the data. Like I, you know, in my current job, you know, I do this job for my own podcast, but I used to do this job for other podcasts, and I'd make a chart. And if if a guest would say something, you know, if they said A, I'd make A. If they said B, I, like you can make a chart, you can do data to show whatever you want. And if I can do that, then this guy who you know got his PhD in physics from the 1980s. He can do what he can do whatever he wants. He's paid fifty thousand dollars to be a professional witness. But basically, it's showing that around seventy eight percent of assets on FTX that were not that did not belong to Alameda or FTX, so client assets, seventy eight percent of them were spot margin, margin lending, or future enabled. So basically. Borrow, uh, you, you know, margin like not a cash security, not the deal of oh, I buy one share of Apple and that share of Apple is mine. I can, you know, if you have a margin account, you can buy two shares of Apple even if you can only afford, you know, one. But that means that you have a margin account and like your your assets aren't your assets. You have a lower sort of claim. But then they also tied in futures trading, which I think is different, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. It is decidedly not the same. But I guess what they were getting at is these were. The defense was trying to illustrate that a lot of accounts were using some sort of leverage and not just normal spot trading. Yeah, like no normal spot trading companies, not FTX is not allowed to take their money. But if you're a speculator and you're using margin trading, you can. And it's like, if, yeah, if you're, if you're using margin, you know, your, the company can margin call you or liquidate you. And so 78% of clients were using some sort of margin uh margin lending or futures enabled. What do you say to that, Casey? So what the prosecution pointed out, which is kind of what I was thinking is, okay, what's your point? The prosecution questioned him. They were like, did you look at any bank statements? Did you talk to any customers? Did you speak to anyone that worked at FTX or Alameda? Like what this expert witness was presenting for the defense was like how much money was being held in certain assets by customers on FTX, which we already knew. The, the government's brought this up. I, I'd have to like really go back and double check the numbers, but they were either the same or like very close estimates of each other. Like there, there doesn't seem to be a huge discrepancy between the prosecution and the defense about how much money was actually on FTX belonging to customers. So that was confusing for me. You know, why spend 50 grand plus and two hours of testimony confirming something that we already know. And also just because this money was held on FTX and just because this amount of, of people were doing this, you know, we'll call it more risky trading, these margin and, and leverage positions, doesn't mean that the customer money didn't ultimately hand, end up in the hands of Alameda and, and that's what the government was trying to get at on their cross-examination. I wasn't follow whatever the defense was trying to make us believe, I don't I don't think I was getting it. I mean, I think, you know, like let's go back to the George Stephanopoulos interview after FTX collapsed. 
And he said, but what about the terms of service? And right. Sam said, well, futures and margin. So I mean, if 80% of close to 80% were on margin, that does change the facts. But the data is weak. It's like looking at like an annual report or quarterly report of Enron in 2001 and, and looking at like what the fake numbers are and then saying, well, you, and then you hire someone and you say, well, I put it in my Excel spreadsheet and it says this. And it's like, well, do you know about the hidden debt? Do you know about the fact that this billion dollar asset is actually made of nothing and is actually worthless? And he said, no, I don't know that. No, I, I don't know that. And he's uh, part of the code for how much uh, Alameda owed was, uh, you, you, you know, add more color on this, was Gary Wang designed it to make it look like <laughs> Alameda owed less, right? And he, he testified to that. He did. He did. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I, the defense was trying to to angle that there was an incredibly, the, the vast majority of funds on FTX was used for margin trading, which I am assuming they will try to kind of bring that narrative back tomorrow with Sam on the stand. We've spent a lot of time looking at the terms of service, like you mentioned, and the terms of service do say that with margin trading, you know, if your position falls to a certain point or if your collateral doesn't get posted or X, Y, and Z, you, you could be liquidated. So it opens the door for the defense, I guess, to, to argue that there was, there was so much margin trading on the platform, that's why they couldn't meet the withdrawals. And that's why people lost their money. Right. But you and I both know that that's a total lie. And that we do. It, and, it's, and not, actually, it's not like everyone just in, their accounts instantly went to zero and there was no money to be. It's, it's that. Yeah, it's exactly. not that the, the customers didn't have any money to withdraw. It's that the account didn't have any money to the, the, the company. FTX did not have the money to the meet pool. those withdrawals. The pool was empty. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and we already know that. I mean, a, an old FTX attorney, Ken Sun, testified last week and said that he looked into some legal explanations in November 2022 to explain why this money was missing and, and why there was this massive hole that, that was money that should have belonged to FTX customers. And one of the ideas that Can explored was actually looking into this margin trading argument. And he said that it was not legally sound. He said that the facts did not support it. So the jury has already heard that from an attorney that worked at FTX, that this defense has no legs. And so just to get clear, Casey, because it, it's when I, I you know, first thought I understood this story in, let's say, December of 2022, but I'm actually realizing the money never was on FTX. It was always, it's not like Alameda took the money from FTX. I mean, maybe they, they took more money later, but the money that was funneled, that FTX uh, clients, they, they sent it to Alameda because FTX did not have a bank account. And then FTX's asset was just the the loan. The, the money was never at FTX. Like it was never, right? It really wasn't. I mean, for the vast majority of time, you're, you're correct. For customers that were looking to deposit fiat currency into their FTX trading accounts, they did so by wiring money via bank transfer from their bank to the North Dimension bank account, which we now know is owned and controlled by Alameda. With Silvergate as the, the, the bank. Silvergate, yes. Later, we learned, and, and I think we, we even knew this before the, the trial started, that there was eventually an FTX account created that most, customer most customers used to, to do these fiat wire transfers, but not all customers. A, an apparent issue that they brought up in court today was with the Alameda account, with the North, North Dimension account, was customer FTX customers, their banks would not facilitate the wire transfer because they could see that this bank account was controlled by crypto hedge fund Alameda Research. And so that was part of the reason why FTX branched out and, and created their own bank accounts. But you're right. I mean, we saw testimony from forensic accountants that showed that it's not like they made some crazy trades and the market fell really quickly and they panicked and they took the customer money and they had to start repaying loans. No, what the forensic accounting is showing us is that they were borrowing from the start and they were using it on everything from venture investments to personal expenditures, personal loans, to payroll, to, to everything. It's not something that happened last minute. It's not something that was, you know, caused by the, the May crash, 2022 crash. It's something that, that was going on well before that. And that's really kind of where 
I think a lot of people coming into this trial maybe were under the impression that this was something that maybe hadn't been going on for as long as we now believe that it was. Going back to Sam's uh, testimony and his cross-examination, what was one of the wi- most wild moments for you that we haven't already talked about? Because there were so yeah. I many, we, we could do this for hours. Even though you, you've, been up, you've been up close to probably 24 hours now. I have I did wake up at two o'clock in the morning um, to, to get in the courtroom. It's worth it though. I mean, you were in the courtroom today. It's there's really no comparison to you can watch it on a live stream in the overflow rooms, but there's no comparison to it's not the same. And I would say they let 21 people into the room and I was number 20. So yes. Jack, he finessed the game well. He got far more sleep than I did and, and still made it in. But no, I mean today was today was exciting. Um, partly because the testimony was, was so damning and, and interesting to listen to, but also we've been on recess. Uh, the judge had a conference, so we haven't had court for a week. And the end of the prosecution's case wasn't that exciting. They had, like I said, a lot of FBI agents, people testifying about phone records and sifting through like countless bank statements. So today we are really back to that kind of salacious bomb dropping, tea spilling, fun testimony from Sam. I think it was fun to watch Sassoon, the prosecutor, really in her element. You know, she would notice that Sam was starting to get off track and she would say, I'm going to stop you right there. Answer she crushed my him. Question. She crushed And she would say, you know, I'm going to ask you again in a different way, the same thing, which you have not yet answered. The judge started chiming in too, saying, you know, you really need to answer the question that you're being asked. And like, you know, we, we just described, Sam was really using a lot of words. He was, it seemed like he was trying to make his answers more complicated, you know, just giving like way too much information, but at the same time, no real tangible information at all, which was fun to watch. I don't really know if I expected anything different. And we'll see if tonight and tomorrow morning, his attorneys tell him to change his strategy in front of the jury. But I honestly doubt it. I mean, it can work in front of the jury. That's what I fear. Yeah, like the the prosecutor would ask, so do you remember signing this document? And he says, like, you know, I, I don't recall if I signed this document, whatever. And she's like, well, this is your wet signature. I can tell that you signed this with your hand, not DocuSign. So, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, I may have signed it and I may have glanced it, but I didn't read it. I mean, he just denied. denied he denied, denied. And, you know, he was like, I, he even admitted to skimming some parts of the terms of service agreement. He didn't even read it in its entirety. He admitted that attorneys and, and people put, documents on his desk all the time. He was constantly signing papers and he didn't always read them that carefully, which again, I I think kind of goes back to this defense of he was so far at the top, he just hired people that led him astray. And we'll see how that works for the jury. But again, I mean, sympathy will only get him so far if, if they believe that the evidence shows that there was wire fraud and there was conspiracy. That's what it shows. It doesn't matter if they think he's a nice guy or not. This is just a, this is an insane day, Casey. <laughs> it was, it was, it's your first day of trial. I'm, I'm really happy that it was an exciting one. It's pretty surreal. I mean, you know, this is a case that obviously I've been writing about for almost a year now. And, you know, obviously I was writing about Sam and FTX well before that, but, you know, seeing it all kind of play out is, is really fun. We had some celebrities in the courtroom today. Michael Lewis, who recently wrote Going Infinite, Ben McKenzie, who is the actor turned author turned crypto skeptic. What did you make of uh, Michael Lewis's appearance? And then he, correct me if I'm wrong, he was not, again, so now I'm the prosecutor, Casey. He was not, yeah. he was not in it in the morning session, but he made it in the afternoon section. And he was in it, he was in a, where was he sitting? He was sitting in what I believe is the defense friends and family section. He was sitting behind Sam's parents in the same row as the Bahamian attorney, Crystal, that testified earlier in the day. So for everyone at home, it's the courtroom is not what you see on TV. I was kind of expecting a, a gallery, like a, a balcony, I guess, like a, a gallery that was up high and, and a lot more seats. Yeah. There are only three rows with seven people each reserved for press and public. And then in front of that, it is like lawyers. Cross, 
yeah, lawyers, prosecution's family. I mentioned when Danielle Sassoon's family came, they sat in front of us. Clerks, people that work in the courthouse, other judges, that's all reserved seating for them. On the other side, across the aisle, is defendant family. There's seats reserved for the witness attorneys. So, you know, if you're testifying, you have your own counsel, they're allowed to sit in the room. And yes, Michael Lewis was sitting on the right side. So he was not he was not sitting with the other journalists. He was he was not sitting with the other journalists. So there are two recently published books about about crypto and FTX. There's Michael Lewis's Going Infinite, and then there's Zeke Fox's Number Go Up. I've I've read both, and I really like Zeke Fox's book. Having read Going Infinite, Michael Lewis's book, a lot of what I heard today, maybe not what was said, but what I heard today directly contradicts a lot of the conclusions that Lewis makes specifically in the latter part of that book. And it, you know, if you, if people haven't read it, literally the last part of the book is t- talking about discovering the tungsten cube, it being an implication that the money is actually there and the money wasn't mismanaged. And that was not on display for me today, Casey. It was, I've also read both books and I would agree. The Michael Lewis book and today's testimony certainly seem at odds. What I will say about the Lewis book is the first, I'll say half, the first hundred pages or so, which I will mention, he does not actually say that FTX ends up bankrupt and that Sam ends up arrested and charged with seven counts of federal fraud and conspiracy in the first 100 pages. He mentions it far later in the book. That is it's that. not said in the foreword. It's, it's not mentioned. But in those first 100 pages, you get a lot of anecdotal stories. We see excerpts from Caroline Allison's diary, which I think there's some ethical questions there. I I felt uncomfortable reading parts of it, honestly. But you get a lot of this personal story of Sam. We, We hear about his family life. We hear about him in school. We hear about his job at Jane Street, how he transitioned into Alameda Research, we hear a lot about the effective altruist movement and how Sam recruited from that community. It is, there's a lot of really great information there, which is, was great to read and and fun to kind of put into context some of these, these things that we hear about him. But yes, I would agree that the latter half seemed at odds with what we heard in court today. The, the document retention policy, he was, Sam McAfee was asked to clarify, what do you retain? What information do you retain and what do you delete with a delay or, or no delay? And he said, well, right. formal business decisions we keep, informal business decisions such as you know chit-chat and informal ch- chatter, that is okay to delete via signal. And people were like, did you ever violate this policy? Sam, not to my knowledge. Is it correct that all signal chats between you and Caroline Ellison were deleted post-2020? Sam, Yes. What about the signal conversation with you, Caroline, Nishad, Gary, about the $13 billion hole in the balance sheet? Was that an informal chatter? <laughs> Sam McFreed said, I don't recall any exact conversation about that, to my knowledge, but uh, that sounds like something that might have happened. Yes. That's what this whole day was. <laughs> that was, yeah, that's a really good summary of the day. One other quote that I liked a lot, at one point, the prosecutor is asking Sam about the safeguarding assets policy that I've believe was outlined in their terms of conditions and just Sam's view on on safeguarding assets as a whole. And she says, would safeguarding assets, would that include not embezzling client assets? After she asked that question, the defense objected, the judge sustained it. So Sam does not have to answer. Sam did respond. He said it would. He said, yes, like embezzling funds would violate a safeguarding assets policy. And the, and the judge had to remind Sam that he doesn't actually have to answer the question when the objection is sustained. But Sam said, I felt the need to answer that one. So there were some, we we saw some of his personality. I mean, he talks so quickly. Yeah. He spoke, I will say there were points during Sassoon's cross that he seemed to get a little bit flustered. There was one point where he took like a really big sip of water before answering a pretty difficult he question. Really, he really liked that water bottle. He did. He he drank a lot of water. But I would say for the most part, his tone stayed pretty even. You know, I mean, there were points, like I said, where he did seem to look a little bit more flustered. But on the whole, he did not seem terribly nervous. He did not seem terribly agitated or upset. He was answering the questions in maybe not the most productive or, or time conscious way. But I was impressed with his composure. 
I think he has really good composure. And if you one were to read a transcript of what was said, I think it would be an absolute disaster for Sam McMurphy on the content. I agree. But in terms of the delivery, he kind of has, you know, a good, he's good, he's a good bullshitter, you know, and he, he sounds confident. And if you're only paying attention to the, the composure instead of the actual content, you might be fooled. Uh, so, so Casey, what do you think is going yeah. to happen? I mean, we're talking 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, where in that? I, this is such a guess. I almost don't even want to say it because I don't want to be proved wrong, but based on some of the attorneys I've spoken with, which again, they're totally estimating as well. They do not want to be quoted on record saying this. I'm thinking in like the 40 to 60 range, potentially could be a lot less, but so sentencing is really far away. We will see the closing statements probably will start on Tuesday or Wednesday of next week based on what the council has informed the court so far on their timeline. So potentially not too many more days of trial, but then the jury will deliberate. They could deliberate for an hour. They could deliberate for weeks. We just don't know. Once the jury comes back with a verdict, the sentencing is scheduled like months down the line. And during that, we'll hear victim impact statements. Um, people will have the opportunity to you know, go in front of the judge and and say their piece on both sides, people arguing for a more lenient sentence, people arguing for a tougher sentence. And this is all assuming that his defense either doesn't appeal or their appeal is denied. So sentencing is is a long way off, I guess, is a long story short there. But I I think it could be it could be several decades. I have heard anecdotally as well that Caroline, Nishad, and Gary, who all took cooperation agreements, meaning that they agreed to testify on the government's behalf in exchange for hopefully a more lenient sentence. And the prosecution will write what's called a 5K letter to Kaplan and the court and explain that their client deserved, not their client, this witness deserves mm -hmm. a lenient sentence. And that could end up being no time. It could yeah. end up being a lot of time. Caroline Ellison's facing 110 years. So it's it's hard to kind of say, but again, anecdotally, I'm hearing that those three witnesses potentially might not serve any time at all. And what is Sam Bankman-Fried's official sentence? What's the maximum he could get? I think it's around 115. It's a little bit more than Caroline. Him and Caroline were both charged with seven counts. So a not a life more. sentence, but an effective life sentence. But it's it's very unlikely that he will get the full 115. It's more... Yes. But there is another trial coming down the line on the campaign finance charges, which I think there's like four counts of those that Sam is expected to go to trial without a march. Again, a lot could happen with that. Let's say he's found guilty. Let's say he's sentenced. Let's say his appeal is denied. Potentially, I could see him not actually going to trial with this campaign finance case and taking some sort of plea if he's already facing X amount of years in jail. However, he has the right to a trial. So no matter what happens, he he could still decide to go to trial. And do you have a sense on what is being done to sort of help the jury understand? Because, you know, this is, you know, you and I, we we kind of live live and breathe finance, you live and breathe crypto and crypto regulation, so a, sort of a niche within a niche. And, you know, this is this is not like easy stuff for 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 us. And so people, you know, they're, they're working a job that has nothing to do with Bahamian regulation and Bahamian digital assets. Like, how are they understanding this? And I guess if, you know, if I were a juror in any other topic other than finance that had some sort of technical aspect, like, I feel like I would be totally lost. So like, how is that sort of being, you know, our jurors, being helped with their understanding and is that a risk that people kind of don't understand it and their their sense of reading people out is oh this guy sounds confident and he has a good composure so he's innocent you know yeah and it's it's a fine line when you're looking at potential jurors i watched a lot of the juror selection which it's it it differs a lot based on court and the judge in this particular federal district the judge is the one asking all of the questions so the defense and the prosecution agree on a list of questions to ask potential jurors to weed them out. For example, like, were you a customer of FTX? Have you ever heard of Sam Bankman-Fried? Do you know Sam Bankman-Fried? All of these would exclude jurors. So at the end of the day, you, you get this pool. There's 18, 12 on the actual jury, six alternates. I would say, so during the trial so far, 
The judge has cut in a few times and asked witnesses to explain certain terms, especially some of these crypto terms, like what is a blockchain analysis? What does it mean that this is on the blockchain? Like what is Solana? Like those kinds of questions that the jury might need some help answering. Also just like general financial terms, like what does it mean to be a commodities trader? What does it mean to trade margin? Those kinds of things. At the end, when both sides have rested, the judge will give jury instruction, which is a pretty big point of contention for both sides. So Hmm. the prosecution issues their motion of what they want Kaplan to include in these jury instructions. The defense opposes a lot of this. And this really gets into the nitty gritty of Kaplan going through, explaining each count, explaining what needs to be proved to you know, say that he's guilty or not guilty on this count. So for example, he's facing several conspiracy charges. To prove conspiracy, you need to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that he conspired with at least one other person to do X, Y, and Z. So a lot of those charges presumably have already been proved with a lot of the witnesses so far, particularly Gary, Caroline, and Shad. But to answer your question, there are... Throughout the trial, there's little helpful hints, both from Kaplan and from the counsel, to explain some of these tougher terms. During deliberation, they will have access to all of the evidence, all of the exhibits. They can take notes during the trial. And then, of course, they are relying pretty heavily on those jury, jury instructions that will come from Kaplan that really kind of get into the nitty gritty of like, what does it mean to be charged with wire fraud? How do you prove that he was charged with wire fraud? Mm-hmm. What evidence have we seen that he was charged with wire fraud or he committed wire fraud? But yeah, I mean, it's, I've seen the jury. (laughs) They don't seem particularly engaged all the time. Several of them have been sleeping almost the whole time. Really? So it it does lead to questions and it makes you wonder for sure. Yeah. And you, you want, you know, you, you want like the average citizen to be represented, but, but at the same time, like. You, you don't want a technocracy, but it's, it's, it's the people who like know a lot about the stuff that might make the big decision, but also they're the type who might be biased. So it's, it's, it's obviously a trade-off. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, people spend, defense teams and, and councils spend a lot of money on like jury consultants. There's a whole psychology behind it, you know, and, and saying like, you do want a mother or you don't want a mother or you want the jury to be young or you want it to be more women versus more men. We see more, a little bit more more women than, than men. There are. There are on the 12 jury, so not including the alternates, it's nine women and three men. There's a pretty wide age range. I think the youngest is 22. The oldest is 70 something. Fairly diverse. I will say, though, in federal court, some of these trials last a long time. Sam's trial was expected to last six weeks. Now we think it'll probably maybe last five not including the time that the jury spends deliberating. There is no federal policy in terms of pay. So if you are called to jury duty, your employer is not required by any law to continue to pay you for the potentially months that you're missing of work. You do get paid to be on jury duty, but it's like 40 to $50 a day. It's it's not a living wage for most people. So that is something to consider when it's a jury of your peers. It's it's not really a jury of your peers. It's a jury that can people afford, who can afford to, to take time off. Yeah. It's people that can, they're either retired or, you know, maybe they're not the primary breadwinner in their household. Like there's all these things that go into it, but for the most part, you are limiting the pool to people who financially can afford to not work for potentially a month. That, that or yeah, or people who have jobs, but they are a white collar job where they're, you know, their boss will understand as opposed to. Yeah. Like and and some yeah. company like so, yeah, like I said, there's no federal policy. The company can make up their own. Some I think a, a common policy that I heard just from watching jury selection is two weeks. Some only pay a day or two. So it's it's a lot to consider. You know, there were a lot of jurors, potential jurors for this trial that weren't selected that mentioned child care and. You know, if they're the primary caregiver for young children, like it throws it really like Kaplan said, and like he's been getting out like this really is a sacrifice to spend so many weeks doing this both financially and personally. And there's a lot that goes into it. But yeah, definitely. There's all these factors that that really do limit the pool. 
but this is just a hypothesis that like clearly Sam Bankman Freed has had historically the ability to charm and bamboozle and trick a lot of successful people in Silicon Valley, journalists, crypto people, finance people, entrepreneurs. I would say that the people who have historically been bamboozled and fooled have been men and that maybe women are a little bit more resistant to his charms. So in other words, that actually could be bad for his, he could get a worse sentence because it's nine, nine women, three guys instead of six and six. What do you think about that hypothesis? I think that's an interesting point. I, there's several mothers on the jury. There's Uh, one woman that's pregnant. So I was curious that the defense was vying for parents and mothers in particular to maybe take a more sympathetic view. Sam's parents have been in court every single day. So they did not look happy today. They did not look happy today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible to know what they're thinking. But like I said, I mean, people pay a lot of money for experts to come in and, and do jury analysis and selection. And in different courts, it, it's run differently. And, and, you know, the counsel has an opportunity to question the jury themselves. In this case, it was Kaplan doing all of the, the heavy lifting there. So yeah, it's it's hard to know. It is hard to know. But I I like that theory. I feel like women potentially could be more hesitant, I guess, to buy into some of Sam's stuff, but it's hard to know. Yes. Well, hey, I mean, we Casey, we got to get into the business of being paid $50,000 to make three charts and then testify. We most certainly do. And this guy, I, I mean, how to use Excel. Put he, me he was asked, like, does is futures trading the buying and selling of crypto futures contracts. And this guy whose expertise was cited as a three degrees in physics and structuring collateralized debt obligations in the 2000s. So a very quantitative guy. He said, I don't have the expertise to answer that question about simple future. I mean, yes. court, court really is is wild. Well, Casey, thank you so much for, for joining us. And you know, I'm my, this is my first day in court. So thank you for, for guiding me, you know, today, as well as over the course of this interview, people, as they can see, can follow you on Twitter at Casey Wagner with two R's. And of course, your, your work at blockworks.co. Casey, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening. Thanks for having me, Jack. It was great having you in court. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.